0: Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is once again Oral Valley Catholic. And it's the week of the transfiguration of the Lord when Jesus takes James, Peter, and John up the mountain and he's transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appear on either side of him. You know, it's really interesting the last two century uh, how the historical critical method really uh, got popular with those that wanted to attack the gospel. So for instance, one line of attack historically has been over the last couple of centuries is that Jesus didn't exist. He was just a figure made up by the early church, which is bizarre since there's more, uh, more, uh references to Jesus than there is to almost any other ancient character in fact jo- Flavius Josephus who is a near contemporary of Jesus talks about Jesus as as uh, as purportedly one of the messiahs of Israel then he goes and talks about other uh, messiahs of Israel like many Jews um, Flavius Josephus rejected Jesus but not because he didn't exist the second, was the question of Jesus's divinity, which the church asserted from the beginning. It's in all four gospels. But the most recent attack is on that notion uh, of Jesus's divinity. And one of the people that is uh, known for this is uh, Bart Ehrman. I think he's a duke. Uh, And Bart Ehrman was brought up as a fundamentalist Christian. He lost his faith uh, in Christianity and fundamentalism, which You know it's the problem of fundamentalism it's not a very rational approach to the gospel but then he started to play up this notion which you may have heard that jesus lived jesus died but the gospels aren't written till many many years later then he says it's like a game of telephone starts out with this remarkable guy who died and was buried and then you know people just felt like his spirit was still alive And over time, as they made disciples about this remarkable guy who was alive spiritually, that the stories kind of transmogrified, like playing the telephone game. And you remember that. You'd sit in a circle, and the teacher would give you a written message. You'd whisper it into one ear. then they'd whisper it into the next ear. And as it went through all those ears, by the time it came back, uh, for comic effect, it was completely changed. I suspect mostly that kids... uh, knew what was expected of him and just delivered it at some point, some distorted view of what uh, the teacher had originally proposed. Well, anyway, when Bart Ehrman talks about that in the Gospels, uh, he says that the story of the divinity really was created some years later, and he says that in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the synoptic Gospels, and the three earliest gospels that Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He says clearly by the time you get to John, John's version of Jesus, which is like the game of telephone, and r- maybe written, well, the last Gospels written according to the early church. Uh, then by then, Jesus is going around saying that, that you know, uh, he's God. But, you know, this doesn't make sense for a variety of reasons. And I'll come back to this essential point at the end of this oral valley podcast friends go to all four gospels and read the part of what charges were made against jesus when he was crucified and you will find in all four gospels that jesus is the blasphemer he wasn't crucified because he threatened the temple That apparently was thought of as ridiculous because the temple is so huge. How could one man tear it down in three days and build it up by himself? That's how the the first century Jews would have looked at it. But in all four Gospels, um, he's asked the question, and he refers back to the first reading in the readings for the Transfiguration, which is from the book of Daniels uh, about one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds in power and glory which is a divine image because in Daniel, that's God coming to save his people, riding on the clouds just like God rides on the clouds in the old, in, late, earlier in the Old Testament. So to get around that's very difficult, but um, it doesn't answer the question directly. Did Jesus claim to be God? And in the Feast of the Transfiguration and a couple other important stories told in the Old Testament, Not only did he claim it, but he did what the God of the Old Testament did. And that changes how you read a lot of other stories where he refers to his divinity. It's pretty clear that Jesus wants people to recognize divinity in him. Why? Well, it's because how do you explain who God is? Um, If you can't see why Jesus is God, uh, and it goes beyond simply his deeds of power, if you can't understand why Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and be able to explain it to them, then you got to take some time and think this through. Jesus is the Son of God because he does what God does, starting with God's love and mercy. Power, everything, um, omniscience, understanding what people are thinking, all of this is the stuff of God. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is set apart amongst all the claims to divinity by all the pagan gods and all the local gods here in the United States of America. Because Jesus actually does care for people. He heals them, He forgives them, He raises them up. And so, uh, in the Feast of the Transfiguration, we're gonna take a little time and talk about why Jesus is the Son of God and why the early church uh, very clearly taught it from the beginning. So Bart Ehrman, I mentioned to him, um, here's his complaint about the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is not quoted as, uh, as saying, hey, everybody, look at me, I'm God, because he never says it like that. But he does what God does, and you have to be able to see and recognize God, because anybody can say they're God. I mean, John Arnold could say he's God. You'd be crazy to believe it. But Jesus walks the walk and talks the talk. And so the second reading is from St. Peter, who was a witness um, to the Transfiguration. And this is from his letter of 2 Peter, probably written in Rome, maybe while he was uh, preparing for his own death. Beloved, we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, when that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven, and while we were with him on the holy mountain, moreover, we possess the prophetic message that is altogether reliable. You do well to be attentive to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. And so look at all the key things that Peter talks about uh, in his letter, which is in support of the preaching he has done in his lifetime. Uh, Jesus is not a cleverly disguised myth, because myths, in the Greek sense, are all stories about God that happened once upon a time. Jesus came, Jesus was born of a virgin, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead. So he's not just a story, he's history because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is part of history. And there are eyewitnesses in the case of the Transfiguration, it's James, Peter, and John, two of whom, Peter and John wrote Gospels, or Peter wrote it through Mark, John wrote his own Gospels. They heard a voice from God the Father, which is interesting because it replicates exactly the experience of Moses on Sinai uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, that they heard God speak, and the people heard God speak. And then uh, it's about the authority of the church to proclaim it, Uh, the apostolic authority. We have the prophetic word because Christ authorized them to preach on this. This is what authentic apostolic authority is. Uh, And so then Peter goes on to say, this is not a matter of one's own interpretation. This stuff actually did happen. And so When Jesus said he's God, um, he did it the same way God did in the Old Testament. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, God appears in a burning bush, and Moses says, "Uh, who are you? To which uh, God responds, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. A burning bush, a fire that does not consume nature, does not consume this bush. In the story of the Transfiguration, it's a fire, this bright glowing light that does not consume Jesus' natural body. Let's turn now to the stories of all the stories in the Synoptic Gospels where clearly Jesus is presented as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll do that now. You know, if you go through the three synoptic Gospels, synoptic with the eyes, you know, uh, to see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there are things that Jesus does only God can do. Mark chapter 2, remember the man who's lowered through the ceiling, and Jesus says, so that you understand that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. I tell this man, rise and walk, your sins are forgiven. So he puts the visible sign of the healing of this man together with the command that his sins are forgiven, because the Pharisees said rightly, only God can forgive sins. I mean, right, I can forgive you, you can forgive me, but that doesn't take into account the offense against God. Only God can forgive sins against God. And so the Sacrament of Reconciliation is this visible sign of this unseen reality. So you have um, stories like that which is uh, what God does. Uh, you have stories in all three of the Synoptic Gospels where the demons recognize him. Do you remember that? We know who you are, you're the son of God, and Jesus tells him to be silent. Um, and uh, there's, there's plenty of stories like that, but the three primary stories where, uh, where Jesus demonstrates uh, divinity or when jesus stills the storm when jesus walks on the water and then this sunday's story about the transfiguration so let's talk about all of those so stilling the storm uh in matthew mark and luke mark 4 matthew 8 luke 8 uh, in all three of those stories jesus is asleep in the boat right because he's human and they run into this big storm and then we all remember the story pretty well the disciples freak out and they wake jesus up and they say um, aren't you concerned that we're just about to be drowned well you know think about this um, he demonstrates his divinity because he has command over the storm and this is recognizes divinity both by the jews and by the pagans poseidon and Neputun, um uh, Poseidon, I think, the Greek god, Neptune, the uh, the uh, the Italian god, the Latins. Um, but both of them can control the storm. They just don't have any other authority besides over storms at sea. And so one of the uh, things that Jesus has in common with the pagan gods is that he has authority over the sea. Where did you see it uh, in the Old Testament? Well, you saw it in the book of Exodus, when Moses parts the Red Sea at God's command. Moses is not divine, but he responds to God's uh, order to do that. Also in Psalm 107, and this is just a few references about stilling the storm at the sea, is uh, in Psalm 107, uh, when when God uh, helps sailors at sea, in the psalm it says, "'Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, "'and he delivered them from distress.' May the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. And so, what Jesus does is consistent with God in the Old Testament. What and what He does, um, and even the disciples say it in the story: "Who is this that the wind and sea obey him?" It's really interesting that when Jesus does all of this, it raises the question of his divinity. Um, but how is it that you get from, say, a coincidence in your life, uh, you think it's a coincidence, uh, where you receive a help from an unseen quarter to recognize it wasn't a coincidence, but it was God that was working in your lives. So this is always going to be one of the struggles in the early church because it's a struggle you and I'll have. So how about the second story? Jesus walks on the water, and that's in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6. And this is uh, the version from Mark. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up into the hills to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were distressed in rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I I am, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. You know, it's interesting that phrase from Mark six, it says, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. The Greek in this, is make, they make a big deal out of the scripture scholars, Catholic scripture scholars. In that phrase, when it says in the gospel, Jesus says, it's me. Generally that's translating the Greek ego me, which literally means I am, which literally is what God says, or it's word for word, what God says to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so when he says, I am, he's identifying himself uh, with the manifestation of the the theophany of God to Moses on Sinai. I think what's interesting in that is when we do biblical translations, I don't think that they're always sensitive to those kinds of issues. Um, A literal translation, you would say, ego in me is I am. But uh, one of the things we were taught in the seminar is called the dynamic equivalent, where they try to take Jesus's words and they try to put it into everyday language so you get the sense he's connected with the modern world and not from uh, the past solely. Uh, well, the problem with that is that you get past or you ignore or you paper over what the early church is doing when it uses those words because the people who write these documents these gospels they're all jews they know exactly what god had said in the old testament and so you know i can understand why you want to get past archaic language but sometimes it doesn't seem to to clarify uh, in some ways the original uh, king james version which is the original version of the scriptures in english uh, is Supposedly gets this much better In a much more elevated language But we never use that in the Catholic Church um, You know, uh, one of the things that's remarkable about uh, About this story is uh, It's used uh, by John in his gospel As he's leading into a discussion Of the manna from heaven As he comes up to the end of John We think it was John chapter 6 which is about the Eucharist, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so as you're thinking about in Eucharistic adoration, and you're thinking about the presence of God um, over nature, which is what Jesus walking on the water, is that Jesus is in command of nature. Well, that's the miracle of the Eucharist also, isn't it? And when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, well, if he walks on water, he has command over nature, and he understands nature uh, and what we think of as the laws of nature in a much more holistic way than I think uh, modern science does, and why it is that uh, the story of the Eucharist is rooted into the very nature of Jesus as God. Remember, when Moses appears, on Mount, uh, God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai, it's in a burning bush. In the Transfiguration, It's the divine present in the humanity of Jesus. In the Eucharist, it's the divine present in uh, bread and wine. I never get why people have trouble with that, um, that God is working in the Eucharist for the last 2,000 years or so. Um, I mean, it seems to be very consistent with how God has always operated in nature. Um, But I think sometimes it's maybe because we don't see the story of the Eucharist in the context of uh, Jesus as the Son of God. And so if you think about this story about walking on the sea, so he walks on the sea in the midst of the storm, which God does, Uh, God is the God of the storm. Uh, In all the accounts, when the the disciples see him, they're always afraid, just like Moses on Mount Sinai, because he always says to them, do not be afraid, which, by the way, is the same thing the burning bush God in the burning bush says to Moses do not be afraid then he adds you're on holy ground and so these lines this understanding is rooting Jesus walking on the waves uh, with this whole image of God uh, in the burning bush um, and then he always says ego in me I am which uh, John makes very present in his stories as a divine uh, reference and then the last part about it is all three of the stories, all four, counting John, um, where Jesus is walking on the sea, he intends to pass them by. Isn't it an odd little line that they throw in there? But that is God showing himself when he walks by Moses uh, uh, in Exodus and he walks by Elijah in 1 Kings. Um, you never get to see God's face in those two stories, just his backside. But in this story, in this revelation of Jesus, you get to see the face of God in Jesus. And so, friends, that brings us to this third theophany, because we're really talking about theophanies. And I could talk about the baptism of the Lord. and I mean, this is, is not just three, but these three are like the core of all the gospels uh, as Jesus' manifestation of the divine. And so, um, the transfiguration. Uh, here's what it says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became glistening, intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountains, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, till the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. Mark chapter 9. Although our gospel this morning is from Matthew. Um, Here's something to think about, Uh, and it's about the transfiguration. So remember the part where Peter wants to put the booths together? There were three major feasts uh, in the um, uh, liturgical liturgical year of Israel that were commanded personally by God. And those three feasts are Passover, you'll remember that, Pentecost, because we celebrate Easter at Passover and we celebrate um, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But the third was the Feast of Booths. So Passover and Pentecost are spring festivals and they have a lot to do with planting um, as part of the life of the people, but also this rem- rem- remembering the story of coming out of slavery in Egypt. and. Christianity has taken both of those and changed the meaning of them, right? Uh, Passover to Paschal Mystery to Jesus' Resurrection. Uh, Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit. So they're both about God's saving action through through uh, the Christian story, the story of Christ. But the Feast of Booths is celebrated as a harvest festival in the fall and commanded by God. It's not one that we have picked up on a liturgical year because the, the Feast of Booths, one of the significances of it, besides just being a, a nature kind of feast, uh, it was also had messianic overtones because the people went back in the tents. That's what the booths are. They went back in the tents just like they did coming out of Israel. Uh, because remember the tents, God dwells amongst them, he tabernacles amongst them, because the tabernacle was a tent among them. And so the, we remember that feast when we sit down again to the Eucharist as Eucharistic overtones, because the Eucharist is, among other things, the Messianic banquet. But as for the transfiguration, uh, also think about it is, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, who are the three who are with him, Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Generally, if he's going to take a subgroup with him, it's these three, Peter, James, and John. Um, And then uh, Moses and Elijah appear. That's the law and the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver and the first great prophet in Israel. Elijah, perhaps the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Though, you know, uh, Samuel, he's, he's pushing hard and heavy on Elijah. I mean, there's some great prophets in the Old Testament, but Elijah unlike any other prophet, um, doesn't die in the Old Testament. He goes up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Maybe that's why he's here, but also it's because of that story of going up to heaven in the fiery chariot that Malachi said that Elijah would come before the Messiah to, to prepare people. So maybe those overtones are in this story, in this manifestation. And then finally remember, uh, Jesus appears uh, and uh, a cloud comes upon them and overshadows them, just like at the ascension a cloud comes. Why? Uh, not because uh, stratocumulus clouds descend from 12,000 feet high or 8,000 feet high or wherever they're at. It's because whenever God comes at Sinai or at Solomon's dedication of the temple in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 or um, here at the transfiguration or at Jesus' ascension, Uh, The glory cloud comes down at certain moments in scriptural revelation uh, and is uh, the mystery of God because in clouds you don't see things clearly, but you see something. Uh, And so uh, all the Gospels depict Jesus as divine. He does only what God does. He stills the storm, he walks on water, and he is transfigured. And uh, at the heart of it is why Jesus is crucified. And so, if you want to know why all of this is historical, it goes back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast. It's because Jesus is crucified. Let's talk about that now in the last part of this episode of Oral Valley Catholic. When we talk about the historicity of the gospel, that these things actually occurred. And even when you get modern critics of it, you know, uh, people have all of their own reasons for attacking the gospel. Uh, why don't they just say, I, I don't doubt everything, I just, I'm not gonna believe. Uh, why did people just not be honest and say that? Because to say that Jesus didn't exist, that's, that's silly. There's more evidence of Jesus' existence um, than there is of any other ancient character um, And so that the stories of walking on water uh, Stilling the water You remember the, the other one I haven't talked about it But it's uh, raising Lazarus from the dead I mean in the John, Gospel of John When uh, they announced to the chief priests and the scribes That Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead That's in the Gospel where it says and so then they started plotting against Jesus and thought about plotting against Lazarus also, make sure the dead stay that way. Um, but uh, in his trial, none of that comes up. Just like nothing comes up, there's this kind of throwaway line about he said he'd tear down the temple. But uh, people just think he's this, apparently this crackpot, this dangerous crackpot. But um, in all the Gospels when Jesus is tried, and John's Gospel probably gets it the most historically correct. Um, but all of them uh, really tell the story. So I'm gonna read from uh, Mark's account, which was probably one of the earliest accounts that Matthew and Luke um, based theirs on. Although I think we read John's Gospel on Good Friday because I think the general sense is it's, it's probably more like how it, how it happened. What happened is in all the Gospels, but kind of the chain of events maybe uh, some people have pointed out makes more sense than John. Um, but here's what Mark's Gospel says. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, and their witness did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet not even so did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus was silent and made no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, why do we still need witnesses? We have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And so when Jesus talks about um, coming on the clouds of power, what he's referring to? Well, the first reading for this, and it's from the Old Testament. And it's why uh, the book of Daniel belongs in the Old Testament, all of it, just like the, we have it. But here's what Daniel says in uh, chapter 6. As I watched, thrones were set up, and the ancient one, that's always God, took his throne. His clothing was bright as snow, just like the transfiguration, and the hair on his head as white as wool. His throne was flames of fire with wheels of burning fire that comes out of Ezekiel. A surging stream of fire flowed out from where he sat. Thousands upon thousands were ministering to him, and myriads upon myriads attended him. The court was convened and the books were open, and as the visions during that night continued, I saw one like a son of man, which is the most common phrase Jesus uses to describe himself, coming on the clouds of heaven, because the glory cloud. And when he reached the ancient one it was presented before him, The one like a son of man received dominion, glory, and kingship, the same power of God. All peoples, all nations, and all languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel 6 is about the meaning of messiahship. And it's not restoring an earthly crown to to Israel. Um, It's about the kingdom of God and uh, where all of Jesus' ministry points to him. So did Jesus claim to be divine? Sure as shooting he did. And um, is he divine? Well, look at everything he did. How do you explain who God is? You may not be able to explain it in the same way you could explain mathematical formulas, but you can say Jesus is God because Jesus does what only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does. God bless you, my friends. This has been another issue of Oral Valley Catholic.